I'm reading from Acts chapter 1, verse 12, to the end of the chapter. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill they called the Mount of Olives, on Shabbat day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of of Yeshua, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Yeshua. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Yerushalayim heard about this, and they called that field in their language, Al-Kadama, that is, the field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Yeshua went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Yeshua was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph of Barsabbas, known also as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. So welcome today. I see a lot of... uh some faces that I don't recognize, so unless I'm losing my mind, I think you're visitors today, um, which is great. So because of that, I want to tell you something. If you have this program, inside of page one, it says a sermon, Fruit Comes After We Wait by Rabbi Chaim Urbach. I'm not Chaim Urbach, so just so you think you come next week and you say, boy, that guy looks different now. As John... Uh, Yeshua, the, I mean, uh, John the Immerser said, I am not he. Um, and then we realize today specifically also that, yes, you know, Chaim is out, and, and, the, and I want to pray that, that uh, we receive God's message because the, the reality is here that uh, the message wasn't Chaim's anyways, and the message that, uh, that I'm going to give you today is not mine. I'm going to pray that, it, that it's God's message. So let's pray. Lord... First of all, I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to be together as a, as a body of believers today. And we lift up those among us that are, that are sick, and you know, it may even be some that are, that are here with us today. But that today, Lord, that uh, in his absence, that we would hear 
your message. I pray for myself that, that, uh, that this message today would be your message. That even as I speak, regardless of what I thought about last night or thought about uh, uh, this morning, that, uh, that your words would come through, that the people who are in attendance here today would hear even just one thing that would, uh, that would help, them wa- help them in their walk with you as they pursue you with purpose in their lives. So we just commit this time to you right now, Lord. We ask you to quiet our minds and our hearts and open them to hear your word, your words in Yeshua's name. Amen. Also, on a sort of a side note, which I'm not speaking about today, but does everyone know what sort of the, the holiday that we're in, if there is such a, it's not necessarily a biblical holiday, but does anyone know what the Jewish holiday we're in? Hmm? Tu B'Shvat. Tu B'Shvat. Um, not necessarily one of the biblical feast days that we see in, in Leviticus 23, but if just for your reference, I'm just going to spend a, just a second on this because this is the, <clears throat> the time that we're in. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, trees are a big thing in Israel. If you've grown up around Jewish people or you grew up Jewish, you, you know, we plant trees in Israel, and there's a big, you know, there was a huge forestation project in Israel that remains to this day, and that's Tu B'Shvat is sort of the, the, the new year of the trees. And where it comes from, if you look in your, in your program, uh, up in the, this little corner here, today is the 17th day of Shvat. Um, and that's, that's, that's the month Shvat. The two are two Hebrew letters that form the numbers. And if you look in a, in a Hebrew Bible, they don't have like, the, you know, number one, like we know it. They'll use the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, the combination of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So the combination two just makes that day and then... Shabbat. So there you go. Tu Shabbat. But if you want to look, Leviticus nineteen twenty three through twenty five talks about this this idea of counting the trees, um, and you know there's a, there's a, a kind of a discourse there on when you come into the land that I give you, this is how you're going to treat the trees, and this is you know, you're not going to eat of them at this time, but you're going to plant and wait a certain number of years before you eat of their fruit, and so that's what Tu Shabbat is. But uh, what I what I wanted to do. Um, you know, is, is, is I wanted to look into Chaim, Rabbi Chaim uh, last week, if you were with us, and if you weren't with us, I'll give you the update. Um, his message is on our website, yeshuatzion.org. Um, he started a series, and we started a series in the book of Acts. And last week, he looked at the, the very first uh, 11 verses of Acts, <coughs> Acts 1 through 11, and I'm going to look at the rest of the chapter today. What I want to do is... is is recap and kind of go over some of that information in Acts 1. Because Acts 1 is, a, is a definitely a nice little unit. It ties into the end of the book of Luke. If you look at the end of the book of Luke, it's sort of a continuation. Most people agree that, that Luke probably wrote the book of Acts and talks about a continuation from that time at the end. Um, but it, that sort of section, this first chapter, is really, you know, all the, the, the things surrounding the life of Yeshua and his, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection... We're still kind of in that here in this first chapter. So I want to take this time to, again, look at what, what, what Chaim spoke about last week and then carry it on into the remaining verses here. And what Chaim talked about last week was this question. It's kind of a question he posed to us. Uh, is it faith or is it fantasy? You all remember that? Um, is it faith or is it fantasy? And he, if you remember, he talked about this idea that, you know, when we look, if we were to look at the way in which we could define the word fantasy, you look it up on dictionary.com, Webster's, whatever. And you compare that to 
the biblical definition of faith? It's kind of uncanny. It's really very similar. So we're, we end up being faced with this, you know, you get this idea of fantasy, and then we have this idea of biblical faith that is, you know, calling things into existence that are not, calling things that aren't as though they were. Kind of sounds like fantasy. And when we read Scripture, we end up getting in this dilemma. You know, we're looking at, we're we looking at faith, we're looking at fantasy in, in, in our own life the same way. And as Chaim pointed out, you know, we read Scripture, and God has this, uh, he, he called it this unfriendly habit of putting us way outside of our comfort zone when we read sometimes. You know, we read these things, and if we take them to heart, it kind of makes us feel uncomfortable. We see here, we see in Scripture cases where God empowers the weak and the foolish in ways that confound the strong and the wise. And we see that, and, you know, we, we get a tendency to, you know, we, we want to we be that person. We want to be that person of faith. We want to be that person that God's empowering and that's confounding the foolish and so forth. But then, you know, reality kind of is that cold water sometimes, you know? I don't know if you guys are sure. Any, any of the men in here that went to college, you know, we used to do things in the showers and pranks on people. You know, you mean they're taking a hot shower and you get a thing of, look at this guy laughing. See, he knows. You get a cold water and it's like, it's like a reality. You thought you were in this nice warm shower and then just a little cup of cold water. And, you know, who comes up with those ideas, you know? Maybe it was Chris Ayers. Was that you? That's why you're laughing? That was your, you, you, you coined that idea? Oh, boy, but it's that, it's that same idea. We get kind of woken up, you know. We, we read the scripture, we get this picture of faith and strength and so forth, and then we look at our lives sometimes and we think, huh, this isn't necessarily what I'm, what I'm seeing. And we start to doubt that faith, and we start, like Chaim was mentioning, we question, is this really just fantasy? And that was the idea that, that we saw that was sort of born out in the beginning of this book of Acts. You know, the apostles and the disciples of Yeshua thought that they had victory in hand, right? I mean, when you read, when you look at the whole course of events and Yeshua came and then, you know, they, they thought he was the one and, but then he was dead and then he came back, you know, and, but he was leaving again. Uh, and there was no definitive evidence that he was going to overthrow Rome. You know, Chaim looked at that there. Is this now the time you're going to set up your kingdom? And he gave him that sort of answer, like, it's not, you know, it's not your business to know when and why. So, as he said, you know, what, what do we do with that? Do we, do we decide that because, you know, this, this faith and this, this picture we have of faith doesn't necessarily line up with reality most of the time, do we then therefore decide to go through life as a, as a skeptic, assuming that based on, on current uh, reality, nothing's ever going to change, and that's kind of the way we cope with things. Is that what we do? You know, Romans 14 actually talks about this. If we, it says that, you know, the things that are not of faith are of sin. I mean, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty serious message for us. In other words, not believing in what looks like fantasy sometimes, not believing in that as people of faith, is sin. That's a hard message, you know? So the question that, that Chaim kind of was going around, and, and you know, I listened to the message again last night, and it really, you know, it's sort of, as he says, it smokes your, your brain a little bit because, you know, where does, where does fantasy end? Where does faith begin? You know, are the lines blurred? And how do we determine between the two. And he kind of broke it down into two overarching categories for us. Number one was the fact that fantasy, as far as what, what is fantasy, fantasy begins with, with us. That's the, that's the determining factor, the, the delineating factor. 
is that fantasy are things that are born of, out of our own creativity and our own imagination, um, you know, us charting our course in life sometimes. And Chaim had a, you know, a couple hard questions that we had to ask ourselves, such as, you know, what, what is it that drives our life? What defines our life? Are they our plans, our strategies, our likes, uh, and so forth? And if what defines us are those things that we've laid out before us, then probably that's, that's fantasy. Even if we make those things happen, even if we're really good at making those things happen, there's a good chance that if they're just born solely within our own, our own person, uh, that they are probably fantasy. And Chaim challenged us with, with, challenged us with the suggestion um, that many of us live our lives and we walk out our lives uh, as practical atheists, regardless of what we confess with our mouth and regardless of what we believe. In reality, we might be walking out in a practical manner as if God doesn't matter. And he said, you know, if God, think in your mind right now, if God didn't exist in your life tomorrow, would your life look any different? And that's a hard question that, that we have to think about. I mean, for me, uh, that's a hard question. I could say that if, you know, if tomorrow my car didn't exist, my life would look a lot different, you know? If my, uh, my house didn't exist, my job, these different things. It's pretty, right away I can think, yeah, I know exactly what it would look like. First thing in the morning I woke up, my car didn't exist. A lot of us know what that would look like. But what if God, what if God didn't exist? How different would your life look? So that's on the one hand, fantasy, fantasy being the things that originate with us. And he said the other overarching piece to distinguish, he said, look, on the other hand, faith are those things that originate with God. Okay? Seems pretty simple. But that's what we really need to get through our head, and that's what we'll see that uh, Yeshua was doing here at the beginning of Acts, is that faith originates with God. It begins with his word. It begins with something that he has communicated even if what he seems to have communicated doesn't, or what if he's communicated doesn't seem to overlap with what's out there in front of you, with what you think you can do, with what things look like right in front of you. He said that's where, that's where faith, faith is. Faith originates with God. And we saw here in verse 3, in chapter 1, verse 3, that Yeshua appeared to them during 40 days. Uh, and actually before that it says, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. What was he doing? He realized that we, we have this struggle of sometimes of, you know, believing and, and comparing things with, what's, with, with, re, with what looks like reality in our life and struggling with them. So he, he was working with them to let them know that he was alive, that his resurrection was real, that his message about the kingdom was real. And it says right there, I mean, many proofs, you know, and he appeared to them. We see there were hundreds of people he appeared to. But the point is, is that, that God knows us. He knows our shortcomings. He knows our, our tendency to, to lose faith and to wonder and to doubt. He knows us, and that's why he deals with us. He continues to show us over time as we walk with him that he's real and that he's worth following because you know, he knows our tendency will be to doubt. And think about that for a minute. If the, if the apostles, the people that were with him, the ones who spent time with him, the people that spent a lot of time with him, and, and we see even in Luke, it talks about you know, Yeshua explaining them, opening their minds about the scriptures. I mean, Chaim's a wonderful Bible teacher. I mean, really good. If you haven't come on Wednesdays, you should come. 
but, I mean, he would admit he's no Yeshua. And I'm sure he's not opening up our minds like Yeshua opened up their minds. So here's these, these people who spent time with him, who, who, whose minds he opened up, that saw him die and saw him rise again. And if they doubted, if they needed many convincing proofs, uh, what do you think about you and I? So it's a matter of experience and repetition in order to distinguish between faith and fantasy, and then also the source, the source of those things. And you, do, you learn to distinguish over time. Chaim talked about the example of the wheat, the wheat and the tares, the parable of the wheat and the tares. We talked about it in Bible study. He mentioned here last week, it's kind of the same idea that at the beginning, these two things are coming up out of the ground together, the wheat and the tares, and you know we didn't want to pull the, the tares or the weeds out because we might pull the wheat out. But over time, uh, then you're like, okay, I can see now as they grow and mature, as time goes on, then you're able to distinguish between the two and you can separate them. So it's really about, it's about experience, experience and time with God. Experience is one of those things, I almost feel silly you know, when, when I talk about this because I know it for myself too. At, at some point, we research, we research, we research, we do this, we learn, we study. But at some point, experience doesn't come that way, does it? You've got you've to do something, and, and, that, and God knows that. That's, again, why he deals with us over time. I was working this past week. Um, my, my son, seven, he, he likes to uh, build things, put things together, and he wanted to build something out of wood. You know, he's got grandiose ideas, you know, and his dad's not a woodworker. But, uh, um, but I can do a little bit of stuff, and he wanted to build a little bed, a little bed for his sister's uh, uh, baby dolls. <laughs> so... He didn't, you know, it's all, you know, he wanted to build something. But that's the, that's the bottom line. <laughs> I'm sure it was a bit, he would have built it for, you know, a knife drawer. He'd done the same thing. But he wanted to build something. So, you know, I've got to kind of had him draw it out, trying to get an idea. Okay, what do I have to make here, you know? And we just, I kind of pared him down to rectangular size and shaped things. Um, and so we had to cut, you know, I had to cut a few pieces of, of one by wood and different things. And, and so I'm teaching, I mean, I'm teaching them how to use real tools, you know? Um, and so... I'm trying to show him how to, how to saw and you know, how to get the blades, you know, the, the teeth of the saw into the wood and to let the saw work and uh, get, get the feel for it. And, and he's doing it, and believe me, it's, it's not, you know, he's not making the groove. And even though I'm trying to get him in the groove, it's, he's out and going this way and that way and that way and his legs in there and all this kind of stuff. And same with the drill, you know, like I'm like, okay, drill straight and put the screw in straight. And my point is that I did I, a lot of that. I was telling him verbally, but ultimately he needed to learn about it over time, and he needed to really feel that saw. I mean, a, f- a couple of the cuts when he got to the end, you know, the wood. If you ever cut wood, he just snapped it off at the end. Didn't work it all the way through to the very end. But those things are things he's got to learn over time. You know, you got to have the screw coming out of the wood. So this is this is experience, and you you can't read about it. You can't. There's no other way. And what Heim pointed out last week, which is, I think really leads us into this last part of the of this last half of chapter one experience not a real fancy word but really it's a fancy word some t- in, in a lot of ways for saying that we have to wait <sighs> you know and Chaim said last week that you know what that that's almost like the w word you know michael at the membership class talked about the c word and it was commitment you know and the w word is waiting <laughs> and we have to you know it's exactly what Yeshua was telling them to do. We see it in, in the beginning in, in verse 4, after he had showed them all these many proofs. He, they saw him, and you think they're, they're, they were really excited. I mean, how could you not be excited when Yeshua rose from the dead and he's speaking with them there? Um, 
And then he says, okay, look, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. And Chaim said, that, you know, that must have been difficult, you know, just to wait, wait. And didn't say how long, didn't say what was going on, and just to wait. But what you find out in Scripture is that God's blessing normally comes to us as we learn to wait. Normally, I'm saying normally. It might be long, it might be short, um, and I don't want to just individualize this. I mean, certainly we have to wait as individuals, um, first of all. But you're also part of a, uh, you're part of a bigger kingdom, but you're also part of a, a local community second. So it's a, it's a, there's sometimes there's an aspect of group waiting, you know. But Chaim said it this way. I wanted to quote. I thought he had a good quote here. He said that God's purposes require that people commit to being together in this waiting process. He requires that his people come together and band together in order for him to do his big work. He told them to stay in Jerusalem. They prayed together, and that's what we're going to look at today, this, this idea of waiting. And so I'm going to give you, I think I, a couple of weeks ago when I, Diane, you know what this is now, the spoiler alert. Is Diane in here? You didn't know what it was. You know what, remember what spoiler alert was? You had a, you still have a question? Just telling you the end from the beginning, like how a movie ends. So you don't want to, you know, this, you, have to, you should give people a spoiler alert before you do that. There was actually, I've got just, this is sort of funny. There's a, there's a Jewish, Jewish comedian. He's not, he's Howie Mandel. Was he too, I, I saw this thing where he did one time, this hidden camera show. It was, it was painful to watch. He's, oh, it's painful to watch him. He's working a ticket booth at a movie theater, you know, and people are coming up, you know, one ticket for Ice Age or whatever. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. You're going to love the part at the end where the, uh, you know, the, the, the guy dies. I'm like, and they, I mean, and he was, he was doing that. I mean, and they were, I mean, they were angry. He was just like telling them the ends of the movie. Oh, right at the TV. Oh, yeah, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. It's great. And so anyways, spoiler alert, I'm telling you, which means you can plug yours. But the point is, in talking about waiting, I think what our passage today tells us is that when we wait, in order to walk in faith, faithful waiting, you need to press, uh, you need to press on with prayer. So to walk in faith, you need to press on with prayer. Press on with prayer. I did pursue God with purpose. It was this total mistake. I did that two weeks ago. Pursue God with purpose. Press on with prayer. The alliteration was completely unintended. But this is what this rest of this 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 this, this chapter is talking about. In waiting, could be it could be short, it could be long, it could be two seconds. And I, I want to look at this waiting because waiting is really critical. Because I think, I mean, in our culture, we've got waiting rooms. You know, and waiting just seems to be this ethereal, you know, one day kind of waiting thing. You want to hear me okay? I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch to this thing, if you don't mind. Sorry, try to make you get up, uh, Isaac. How about now? The man is on it. See, I waited. That's right. But not long. Yes, that's the thing. Sometimes there are things that, that we don't wait long on. So the point is waiting is is different in different situations, but waiting it's critical that we know some of the basics about waiting and what waiting is and what waiting isn't. Um you know, it could be because sometimes we again we're we're looking for the exit on the highway and we pray and, and we need that answer in about two seconds. And sometimes I feel I don't know about you, but I'll feel, yeah, I was supposed to get off here. This was the exit, and I feel like that was a real answer. I did wait, but sometimes it doesn't work that way. It could be a longer time. Like, I feel like I waited a long time to get married, and not that I wanted to, but I can look back now and in retrospect see that I wasn't ready so that we can see the benefits of waiting. 
But waiting, again, I want to look at kind of what waiting is and what waiting isn't. When I first thought about this idea of waiting, the picture that came to me, you see that thing with a dog? You take the dog and you tell him to sit. You probably do this, Lee. And you, put the, you, may, you, you don't teach your dogs like this, I'm sure. And you put that biscuit on the nose, you know, or you put it right like a foot in front of him. Like, wait, wait. And the poor dog is just like, you know, shaking and quivering. And then like, yeah, get it. You know, and they, and they grab the thing off their nose or they run. And that's waiting. That's, but that's really not the picture that, you know, I think the biblical picture of waiting on God and waiting in faith and pressing on with prayer while we're doing that. Um, what I thought about, one, one thing I thought about was a couple things I thought about that I want to kind of maybe will help you visualize it a little bit better. Um, one was uh, if you ever played sports before, if you go to like a little little league, uh, even up, up, up as high as high school sometimes, like a soccer game, for example, where there's you know 11 players in the field, maybe you got half a dozen on the bench, and the ones that aren't playing, in their mind, they're just waiting, you know. And when they're little kids, I mean, they're playing on the side. They're pulling grass out and, you know, and then it's like time to go in the game. Cats, huh? What? You know. Oh, yeah, I was waiting, right? But that's not really good waiting. The waiting I like to see is the way hopefully like professionals wait with their, you know, their, their helmets on their knee and their football. And they're focused and the, tuned into the game so they know exactly what's going on. And they're ready when it's their time to go in. That's the kind of waiting. And also, when we wait on God, the more we experience God, the more we experience hearing from God and, and pressing on in prayer and, and faith with him, it's like, you know, it, we wouldn't be frustrated or impatient waiting. It would, be, it would be about as silly as you hear someone gets pregnant and then, or the person that gets pregnant is like the next week going, well, like frustrated because the baby's not there. Well, that'd be silly, Right? That's because we know after experience, millennia, you know, of time that, no, no, we, we know this, there's a, you know, roughly 37 or 41 and a half, 42 week period of time that we have to wait. Nobody would be frustrated after the first week. Nobody would. In fact, we, we kind of don't want things to happen before 37 weeks, do we? I mean, there, th- 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 this is a, a known quantity and it comes with experience and time. It's that same kind of idea. That's the, I think, the way that we should think about our waiting with God is that it's expected. You know, it's expected that we're going to have to wait. And it's a time where things grow and things develop, whether we understand them or not. So, again, that brings us this part of the passage, this kind of talking about how we're to wait. Because we see that the disciples were there. Yeshua told them to wait. They went back, and they're waiting. And, again, their world was, their world was upside down at that time. It really was. They were, I, think, I know they were confused. You know, it says they went back to Jerusalem, and, you know, did they go back jumping and shouting and saying, you know, woohoo, we saw Yeshua, he's coming back, pack your bags, we're moving on up, all that kind of stuff. Um, yes and no, actually. Not to, to coin Heim's phrase, but yes and no. We do see that they were doing it in prayer, and there's also some, there's this picture we th- sometimes, at least I had had in the past, where we, we picture the disciples going back to Jerusalem, and they're huddled in the room upstairs and just shaking and waiting for the Lord. And that's really not the picture. I mean, it wasn't some little back room. It says in Luke that they were praising God in the synagogue daily. And there were at least, you know, 15 to 18 of them in this room. And there was, we see here a little bit later, there's over 120 of them. So there's a, there's a different picture. This is a good example for us on, on how to wait. They were confused. We see some disbelief. We see that in, in, in Luke. But they were also waiting in faith. They had joy and disbelief. 
and there's an expected uh, understandable level of emotions. So again, what's the message? What, to, uh, you know, uh, let me term it the way I don't want to give you two different ways. How did I say it? To walk in faith, you have to press on with prayer. So it might seem overplayed, press on with prayer. I sort of struggled with that idea, like this is what I think this verse is talking about. And I guess I didn't know the title for Heim's message until I got in here today. <laughs> but that's what it was. It was about waiting as well. Cause I, I agree with him. I think that's what this passage is instructing us. This pas- is what this passage is showing us, is this picture of waiting. But again, the question is, what, how do they wait? Because waiting is not a passive, a passive kind of thing. They're praying. And now it's important, this is where I want to spend a little bit of time, it's important to understand that it was no ordinary kind of praying that was going on here. Okay? Um, this is the kind of praying that's like the experience I talked about. Okay? About learning, you know, learning about tools, I was talking about that. The language here, in, even, in the, even in your English translations, I looked at a lot of English translations, the language here is very strong. Most all of your translations probably have something to the effect of, they were constantly devoting themselves to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves single-mindedly. They were continuing steadfastly in prayer. The picture is one of, of an uncanny unity coupled with a continual devotion and dedication in order to discern God's will. That's the picture we see. I kind of see it. It's like a, you know, if you've ever read the stories of professional athletes, I mean, like golfers. I remember uh, reading a story about Jack Nicklaus one time, and people, how would you get to be such a great golfer and so forth? And he's like, look, he goes, I'm surprised more people aren't great golfers, <laughs> you know? He goes, I just hit thousands of golf balls. Anyone can do it, but most people don't. And he goes, there's no secret to why I'm doing that. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of dedication. It's, it's like a, an Olympic, uh, people who shoot for the Olympics. You know, their, their, their focus is, is way beyond the, the ordinary person. But, it's, but it's, not, it's not a secret, you know. The Olympic basketball teams, for instance, I mean, these are people shooting shot after shot after shot and all being together as a team, traveling together, eating together, talking together with coaches around them, all focused on that purpose of, of the Olympics. And that's the picture of the, what these men and women were doing here. They were praying incessantly, and they were doing it in one accord. That idea of one accord, it's that same Hebrew word, actually, in our, we didn't read it in the Torah section that we read today, but in the Torah portion today, when James, what did James say? He didn't like the, the ten words, <laughs> the ten commandments. Um, but we read there that when the people heard, you know, we all, we like, we like to poke fun at it, but, you know, the, the people said, everything you said we'll do, right? We, we, you, ever, you ever read that? And if you read it in Exodus chapter 19, all the people answered together. All the people answered together. We'll do it, all of us. That's the same word. That, that we see here, it's actually the same word that's translated into Greek. It's the Hebrew equivalent, this idea of together. And I'll be honest with you, this, is, this I think is the real meat of this passage, this verse 14, in terms of how to prove. When, when I say press on with prayer, I mean, if, if there's a secret in terms of prayer, that's it. But I, I, the more I looked at that, I, I realized that that was a real hard picture for me to digest because it's so vivid it's so again it's so vivid here that they prayed constantly in one accord and it was hard it was a hard picture for me to 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 attain you know but again if there was a secret something that's being revealed it's right here and it's not really hidden it's not hidden or anything it's very clear what our process of pressing on with prayer needs to look like 
It's Acts chapter 1, verse 14. And it's not clear how long they went on like this either. It's sort of the time frame. But what is clear is what this yielded. Not because of them, but because of the experience they were gaining with God. It's clear to that, that prayer led to a revelation about, about what, the, what they had experienced with this betrayal of Judas. Because there's several verses that talk about this. And just as a side note, if you want to go, the, the, the two Psalms that are being referenced there, Psalm 69 and 109, I think, or 65 and 109. 69 and 109. If you want to read some good God go get them kind of passages, whew. I mean, Psalm 109, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, when they're relating this to Judas, I mean, these things talk about, you know, like Haim talks about, may his teeth fall out, you know, my enemy. It's like, may his teeth fall out, may his name be blotted forever, may his, may his, his you know, his parents be bereaved, may his, may his wife be a widow, may his kids, go, you know, be orphaned and no one take them in. And I mean, it's, it's pretty serious stuff. But here's the thing. I don't believe Peter was wallowing in that. I don't believe he was remembering the things about Judas and just trying to make sense of it. But I think the reality is, and I think the thing we can relate to is that, are there things in our life that we wonder, why did that happen? Even to this day, still wondering, why did this happen? Why did that not happen? And we still can't make sense of it. I think it's clear that these folks who had spent time with Yeshua, who had seen him die, who had seen him rise from the dead, who had then spent, you know, 40 days with him, who then gave them specific instructions, they still were wondering, yeah, but why did this, why did this thing with Judas happen? You know, you'd think they would have not even been there anymore, right? Why did this happen? Why did he betray us? And all of a sudden, not even all of a sudden, we don't know how long this, this prayer went on. It was like the light bulb went off for Peter. He didn't get up and say, you know, guys, I think, I think I've kind of been able to um, revise this history and figure out what happened here, you know. I think I know here's how we can make sense of this, you know. I might have an idea of what to do next. No, basically, he said, I mean, the picture is intense, unified prayer, like I would venture to say most of us have not experienced, to I've got it. And that's the, that's the connection. The literal, literal translation of what he says here in verse 16, mine says, friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, okay? But what it says is, and uh, Dr. Hecht will back me up, I'm sure, it's Delta Epsilon Iota. It is necessary. It, w- it was necessary. Basically, it had to happen. He was certain. It was necessary that this happened. Some of your translations probably say that. I think David Stearns does. He says, it's all necessary. This was necessary that this, this whole Judas business t- took place. It had to happen. It's a very strong statement of faith. And I want to stop and ask us to consider for ourselves, and I want to ask you, how often are you able to say that? How often are you able to, to say with that kind of confidence that it was necessary that this happened, or it was necessary that this didn't happen, or it was necessary that I've got to wait, you know, with absolute certainty like that? Can we say, can we say that? You know, for me, just being honest here, I, you know, I, I tend to rehash over and over again. Why's that cute girl back there smiling? She knows, she knows, okay. <laughs> it's my wife. Um, sometimes after all that rehashing, still not understanding, you know, and I want to tell us here today and tell myself also that we can have a breakthrough. We can have this kind of understanding that Peter have had, but it requires us to, per, to press on with prayer in this way.
Are we going to be like, like these guys? I don't know, but that's the, definitely the picture. Peter does. Peter has this certainty. For him, it must have been faith, not fantasy. Again, considering the devastation they felt. You know, they felt some devastation. It was clearly still on their minds. So let's stop here for a moment and, and kind of recap a little bit to get us where we are. Yeshua tells them to wait until they receive power from the Holy Spirit. So they go home. They pray fervently together. They receive that power. Peter says right here, I mean, some people want to do all kinds of, what does Chaim say, like uh, yoga position, twist the scripture into pretzel position or whatever here to figure out what's going on and what Peter, t- but you know, Peter, the thing is pretty clear. He said these verses were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were talking about uh, Judas's betrayal. He said that that's what was going on. The Holy Spirit was, was operative in David's time, inspiring that message that Peter was receiving himself through the power of the Spirit in order for them to move forward. And think about Don't forget, this is still part of the big picture. You should have told him to wait in Jerusalem. Why? Just wait and you'll get, you know, he said, so that you can go on and be my witnesses, right? And we see here, we, we see that in verse 22, kind of picking up that same theme. There was certainly... You know, sometimes we get this, this image, right? This is what God wants us to do. This is the picture we, like even us here at Yeshua Tzion. You know, we talk about having a building. We talked about it today. We've talked about it for a long time. Is that because we don't have it or see it right now, does that mean that that's still not in process? Are we waiting? I believe we're still in a period of waiting. Do we understand why it is, how it's going to happen? No. But it's the same kind of situation. There was a plan in front of them to wait here, so then you could go out and be my witnesses. So they waited. In the meantime, they pressed on big time with prayer in unity. The breakthrough happened. And then in verse 22, uh, after they had, uh, is it 22? Yeah, I looked at 23. It says that, at least mine says that beginning from the baptism of, of, uh, of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they were still focused on that plan. Even though Yeshua was gone and the kingdom didn't seem like it was set up, they still knew that the, that the, the program, that the, the, the race that was laid out before them was to be witnesses. And after that breakthrough came, he said, look, hey, you know what? Now we can move forward with this business of being a witness for Yeshua. So that's the final thing that we see the apostles doing here is that we see them taking that deliberate step of faith in selecting this person to replace Judas. And if you read anything... Uh, internet or any kind of commentaries that talk about this verse, you'll, you'll sometimes, Michael told me about one he found last night, you see people talking about uh, who are these who are these guys, and we, you know, even in, you, uh, we'll, they'll analyze their names, and what do their names mean, and who were they, and was this a good choice, you know, just to, it seems like after all this faith is pressing on, they just, okay, now let's throw some dice out there, and we'll just pick somebody, right, and God, you, you know, but it's not like that, you know, it's not like that at all, um, yeah, we've never heard of these guys. And actually, I want to I encourage you to look at that a different way. Because you, you don't hear about Matthias. You don't hear about this, the other guy, uh, Barabbas. Not Barabbas. Bar, Bar, Bar Saba. Saba. They think maybe it means son of Sabbath. It could mean something else. So we don't hear about him anywhere else in Scripture. So maybe it was a poor choice, and this is a real slip-up on their part. We don't hear a lot about all the rest of the apostles either. We hear about Philip. We hear about James. We hear about Paul, you know, one or two others. But you don't hear, you know, and even in the case of Judas, this is someone that Yeshua chose, right, after a night of prayer. So that's really not a, a very good argument. Um, 
And I think what it does for us, it gives us another demonstration, just another experience, another demonstration of God using who he wants, when he wants, someone not flashy, someone not obvious. And I think it takes the pressure off of us to believe that way as well. And also their, their decision, when you, when, you, when you look at their decision in context, it just doesn't make any sense for them to be in this kind of prayer, have the revelation, and then just throw dice, you know, to figure this out. I mean, certainly they cast lots, but they said before that, they said before they cast lots, they said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these you have chosen. And they undoubtedly were familiar with Proverbs 16. 16.33 says that the, the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is the Lord's alone. So do we know exactly how all that works? No. <laughs> but at least I don't. If you do, that's great. But I don't think we know exactly how all that works. But I think the overall picture is clear that this was no ordinary roll of the dice as we see it. So, so do you think that uh, this is kind of the case with us sometimes? If they, Again, if they were clueless, if they were clueless and it took a visit from God and a time of focused, intense prayer and worship, how about us? What do you... What do you and I need to engage in? So Rabbi Chaim may cover more from this chapter next week. I don't know, but I want to I look at what we've gleaned so far from, from all of chapter 1 between last week and this week. The first thing I want us to remember is that Yeshua appeared to them, seeking to convince them that he was real, the reality of his resurrection and his message about the kingdom. Again, we saw in verse 3 where he appeared to them through many proofs. And the application for us is that God works with us over and over, giving us also repetitive proofs in order to help us learn to distinguish faith from fantasy and learn to trust him. If they needed that, we certainly need that. And I want you to think about, you know, things like that in your life. There might be little things that, you know, I, I, I see little glimpses in my life sometimes where, like, you know, I, I did pray about that. And, you know, it, it little, little things that build on top of one another where we can say that that was God little repetitive proofs. God works with us that way too. Don't overlook some of those things and always try to explain them away and, you know, figure out, well, that happened because of this or that happened because of that, you know? And the second thing we want to see from this chapter is that he told them to wait so that they'd receive power to be witnesses to the world. And the application for us, again, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. I'm not saying it's easy or it happens overnight, but the application for us is that is that waiting is definitely part of our walk with God. It's part of being able to do more. Or it's, being, it's being part of being able to, to more readily recognize God's working in our lives and realizing that waiting is a very active thing. It's not sitting in the waiting room. It's not, uh, you know, sitting there with that biscuit on your nose. Uh, it's not that kind of thing. It's a very active thing. And we need to press on with prayer by devoting ourselves to continual prayer. And not just individually, but it's part of the, the kingdom, part of our local community as well. And again, I want to keep saying that, again, if those disciples needed it, and they needed to engage with the Lord at the level that they did, based on their background and their experience with the Lord, how about us? How about us? So as we spend the next few minutes here in, in worship, before we close out our service, we're going to spend a few minutes in worship. I want to encourage you in your, in your walk with God. It doesn't mean that, 
you're not going to have doubts from time to time, and you're not going to struggle with this, you know, is this, like Haim says, is this you, Lord, or is this last night's pizza? In his case, I think it was last night's pizza. Um, this is one of the few times. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to say we're not going to struggle with that. We're not going to have doubts about whether or not you're really hearing from God. But I want to encourage you in that time of waiting. And as again, as we spend this, this, these few moments in prayer, uh, I mean, in, uh, in worship before we close our service, I want to encourage you to, to think about walking in faith, part of that walking in faith being pressing on with prayer. 